join me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 2. I'll tell you that one of my elders and I, depending on who's doing it, uh, to have a little glimpse into people's lives. Um, and the other day was no exception. It was a thrill to sit down with uh, Mr. Daryl and Miss Kathy. Um, and Kathy was sharing with us where she had spent part of her life living, right? And um, she wasn't born in this place, but she certainly lived in the area near Death Valley in California. Um, so Death Valley is, it contains the lowest place, the lowest point in our contiguous United States, all the states of our contiguous United States of America, the lower 48, it's the lowest point being about 282 feet below sea level. Now, 85 miles away from that in the Sequoia National Park is Mount Whitney, which is the absolute highest point in our the lower 48. So standing high at 14,505 feet is Mount Whitney. You travel down off that, which she lived in the shadow of that mountain, um, then travel 85 miles over and you're in Death Valley. So you can travel as the crow flies 85 miles and be from the depths to the heights. And uh, you can imagine traveling those 85 miles from the lowest place to the highest. But what a physical traveler can do in roughly 85 miles to span the distance from lowest to highest. Paul did in about 12 verses spiritually. And it's in that passage that we're going to look at together um, this morning as we travel those 10 verses, starting at the lowest depths, right? The condition, the lowest depths being the condition of someone apart from Christ, lost, born in sin, and then climbing the heights of salvation by grace to the glory of God. And that's what Paul zeroes in here on these 10 verses of chapter 2. So we'll take that journey together this morning, um, and we'll do so by looking first at the walking dead, and then we'll look at a divine intervention, and then we'll close our study together by looking at the master craftsman. So let's first... Um, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read this passage together before we talk about it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. More importantly, Lord, thank you for the gospel that this word describes. And thank you for your son Jesus, who made possible the gospel that saved us. All who trusted by faith in you, Lord, could be raised to walk in newness of life. And we celebrate that this morning. We ask as we study this passage that you would... Um, cause the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. And Lord, that we might live um, as people who have shed their burial clothing. Um, Lord, to your glory and for the sake of your great name. Help me, Lord, teach this with clarity and certain power from your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll follow along as I read the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work 
in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those are some depths, right? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even, which we, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. And I pray that he'll add richly to our reading by now explaining it and causing it to be planted deeply in the fertile soil of our heart. We, we look back at the beginning and take the first three-letter word. Notice right there it says, and. The word and, it, it forces us to look back to the portion of the previous section to which this word and, this conjunction, is referring Jesus died a real death. And he was put into a real tomb. And he was raised to life three days later by the power of God. With no stain of sin, Jesus willingly offered himself as a substitute so that the wrath of God could be satisfied for all who believe in his son Jesus. Now verse 19 of chapter 1, look back there with me, told us that it was the immeasurable greatness of God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, having raised up the glory of God by highlighting the immeasurable greatness of God's power in verse 19, now you fast forward into our passage this morning and Paul will raise up the glory of God, highlighting something else. The immeasurable riches of His grace. You'll do that in chapter 2, verse 7. Look at it again before we jump into the hole here. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So as to appreciate the mountaintop height, however, right? This, this pinnacle of God's grace being made available to all who would believe by faith in Him. It's necessary that Paul help us, helps us understand the depths from which we were saved. Okay? We were, in essence, as we've put on the screen, the walking dead. We were the walking dead. We see that in verses 1 through three. Notice three things that Paul points out that were true about people before their salvation. I'm going to use language like that was true. 
things that were true. Because Paul, although it may not be applicable to everyone in any room, right? It could be that God is working by grace to draw you into relationship with him. And these words of chapter 2 are some of the tools that he'll use to draw your heart to trust him by faith and be saved. But that's not who he's writing to here. He's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, so my language will reflect that. Okay, So notice these three things that Paul points out that were true about people before their salvation. First thing he points out, I'm going to, instead of saying they, I'll say we. We were dead. We were dead. Notice the language. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. A buddy of mine, his name is Garris, he would occasionally come to my house on Saturday mornings and we would take off and go running, depending on wherever it was. One day we ran from my house through the shepherd community into another portion of town. And as you ride through the shepherd community on the way to the airport in Chattanooga, you pass a couple of cemeteries. And Garris, we're running it, maybe 6.30 in the morning, relatively dark outside, right? He says, Chris, you know that nobody who lives in this neighborhood is, can be buried there. I'm running. Still tired, still trying to wake up. And I said, what do you mean, Garris? Why can't people? And he says, well, they're still alive. And, th- and I thought, Garris, thank you. It's very funny. He wasn't even a dad yet. He had already perfected the dad jokes. There's no way to overestimate what Paul is saying in this verse, however. We were born into this world spiritually dead, totally separated from God, and we were set on walking in our trespasses and sins. Remember, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came through his sin. So death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Oftentimes we'll sing a song in this room, and it's in my car, in Spotify, in my office, when I'm listening to music called, Oh Great God. And in that song, there is a half of a verse um, which describes what Paul is saying here. And the, the words of that hymn or that verse is this. He says, I was blinded by my sin had no ears to hear your voice, did not taste your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Paul is not saying here, and it's, it's not that we, before we were believers, it's not that we knew better and had chosen not to follow God. Um, it's that sin had rendered us incapable. And it had rendered us totally incapable of responding to God, incapable on our own of being raised to walk in newness of life, which Paul will speak of in Romans chapter 6. Now he uses this phrase, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the phrase trespasses and sins, it doesn't refer to a a specific list of sins, but it refers to the, the sphere of existence in which the lost live. Of, or, or more importantly, we lived, right? It may seem like a contradiction that one could be dead while at the same time walking, 
right? Which is what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But Paul is talking about one's spiritual state, not their biological state. This is why we can have a physical pulse while at the same time having a stone-cold, dead heart that apart from grace is incapable of worshiping God, although it's totally capable of worshiping other things and following after other things, which is what Paul is describing here. And this brings us to the second thing that Paul mentions about the spiritual state of a lost person. First we saw that we were dead, and then he says that we were led. We were dead, and we were led. The enemy would have people continue to live under the deception that they are in fact the rulers of their own domains. That they are in fact the rulers of their own decisions. But on the contrary, however, and I'm just kind of underlining this, the lost man is not the architect of his own life, but he's actually really following hard after what Paul refers to as three different things. Okay, so let me draw your attention to the text here. We've just read, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and then following. Notice this. So we were led. Following the course of the world. So in your notes, you might put this uh, underneath that, we were led. I got three things to put under there. We followed the world. Okay, that's the first thing under that. The verse says, following the course of the world. The world that Paul mentions here is, that, is the world system. It's, it's the philosophies. It's the culture that, that is totally set against the things of God. Jesus said that the world will hate you. The world will hate you because the world hated me. In the 80s, you might remember... Um, Cutting Your Teeth on a Song by Michael Jackson, right? One of his songs said, Tell them that it's human nature. Tell them that it's human nature. Here's an old guy singing a Michael Jackson song behind the pulpit. Forever to be shamed by those who are hearing. But in a real sense, this line couldn't be more true. We inherited, and we were born with a sin nature that was at odds with God. And it was in harmony with the world. Like a dead fish, we went with the flow of the stream. And the flow defiantly crashed against the things of God. And that was the state in which we were born. We were dead. We were led. We followed the world, and next you'll see that we followed the devil. Look back at your passage in your text there, where it says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul refers to the devil as the God, lowercase g, the God of this world saying that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John made it very clear that the whole world, 
that world system, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, who Paul refers to here in our passage as the prince of the power of the air. He'll come back to this in Ephesians chapter 6. The devil is the prince. The power of the air is that um, those, those influences um, of, of his bidding that are leading uh, the lost to follow after their own devices. It's as if the world lives under the illusion of another old song by Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Where in fact, it wasn't our way. But when we were lost and apart from Christ, we were following hard after the world and the devil. That's not all we followed after. Paul mentions one more thing here, and that's our flesh. We followed our flesh. We followed the world. We followed the devil. And we followed our flesh. Notice what this says. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the desires of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Simply put, we aggressively pursued what we wanted, whether that desire was financial, social, or sexual. When we were born, and I'm going to throw some air quotes here, our wanter, it was set on satisfy me. It was set on mine. It was set on, I want what I want. It was set on, I want to be the boss of me. The problem, however, is that our wanter, so to speak, was irreparably broken. And that's the way we liked it. We followed the devil. We followed the world. And we followed our own fleshly desires. And then back to our outline, we were condemned. We as the walking dead apart from Christ, we were dead, we were led. And as Romans 3 makes so very clear, we were condemned. Here's what Ephesians 2 says. And we were by nature, there's nature again. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. Wrath is God's legitimate and holy hatred of sin. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness They're suppressing the truth. Hopelessly lost. And desperately broken. And spiritually bankrupt. Dead, as it were. Sinful man deserved. I'll put that in the present. Sinful man apart from Christ deserves God's wrath an eternal punishment. In fact, all of us were helpless. All of us were incapable of satisfying what sin demanded apart from, apart from, 
divine intervention. We turn the page as we're traveling from the lowest point to the highest heights of the reach of the gospel. And it begins with two powerful words, but God. If you've heard the desperation in verses 1 through 3 that says that there is nothing there was nothing inert in us, or there was nothing in us that's what I mean to say capable of fixing us or even capable of creating and fostering in our hearts a desire for that apart from God's grace then you've caught what Paul is trying to get us to see here Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is a great standalone passage but it stands in the it's almost a fulcrum in the midst of his exuberant benediction that he started 2 weeks ago and his passionate intercession that he started just last week and now we walk into this and he wants us to see this as all being evidences of God's power and his grace put on full display not only in your life today but forever so these two words but God are meant to stop us in our tracks and you can tell as you're reading it stops Paul in his tracks it almost distracts him from his train of thought as he throws in some additional phrases upon this before he picks up his subject later. But notice what he's talking about. Um, a, a large umbrella for you to see here under divine intervention is God's power. God's power. And you'll see it here in verses 4 through 6. I bring it up now because it's why I drew your connection to the earlier section, the immeasurable greatness of his power and the immeasurable riches of His grace. Those two are meant to be seen together. So remember from last week where we highlighted, and just this morning we highlighted the immeasurable greatness of His power. The power that raised Christ from the dead is toward us who believe. Paul specifically mentions three ways in which God's power was displayed in our redemption. Each of which are done in union with Jesus. I won't spend a lot of time here, but I will point out the three different places and the three different things all have attached to them the same prepositional phrase, with Christ. With Christ. With Christ. Okay? The first we see in our passage he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Notice the passage starting at verse 5. I'm sorry, start at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here are the three things, made us alive together with Christ. And then he, in, he interrupts himself, by grace you've been saved. Second thing, and raised us up with him. Third thing, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These are historical events in the life of Jesus that Paul then applies to believers. 
Don't miss the words, again, with Christ, with Him. They're attached to every aspect of redemption that Paul catalogs in our passage this morning. Let me go on an intentional tangent. The life that God provided through Jesus is not only abundant life. Remember what Jesus said? I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. It's not only abundant life, nor is it only a new life. You'll remember what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So it's not only abundant life. It's not only a new life. It's not only an eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It is all those things, but it's not only any of those things because it is also a united life. The life that God provided us through Jesus is an abundant life, a new life, an eternal life, and it is a united life. And that's what Paul is wanting us to see now. It'll carry us through the rest of the book and enable us by God's grace to walk this life to His glory. It's a united life, and that unity is with Christ. Now because believers are in Christ Jesus, this is good news, because believers are in Christ Jesus, God deals with them not as they deserved to be dealt with, but He has dealt with them and is dealing with them, interacting with them as His Son deserved and deserves. So the same way that He dealt with Jesus, He is dealing with His adopted sons that He adopted to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Think back about Jesus' resurrection and His ascension, His exaltation. Okay? Jesus was vindicated and He was exalted at His resurrection and He deserved it. Right? We, however, by God's grace, share in that same vindication. We share in that same exaltation, not because we deserve it, but because it is bestowed upon us And listen to these motivating factors. By divine mercy, God's kindness, immeasurable grace. And this takes us to our next verse. We've looked at God's power. Let me spend just a minute in verses 7 through 9 to look at God's motivation. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 begins with, with words that ought to train our hearts to stop and realize that God is providing us through this word a reason for what He has done. Notice, so that. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? 
did God intervene? It wasn't because of our goodness. What motivated God to do what he did for sinful man? Verse 7 answers that very clearly by saying that God put his grace and kindness on eternal display when he saved a rebellious people to himself. Allow your mind to go somewhere that's impossible for it to go to. (laughs) But if there were an end date to eternity, which there's not, there would not be enough time to exhaust the extent of God's grace described here by Paul with these simple words, immeasurable riches of His grace. Enjoyed reading through this weekend a portion of uh, John Piper's book called Providence. And he spent a good deal of ink talking about the the vastness of God's immeasurable grace. And what he said is, you know what's going on here? Is that if every day, which no doubt is what's going to be part of our days, right? God is going to be revealing more and more and more evidences of His grace throughout all eternity. And because it's immeasurable, there will never be enough days in eternity to exhaust the content that describes God's grace toward His Beloved children. According to the late theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul, he says, the ground of our salvation is God's love and mercy. And its goal is the promotion of His grace and kindness. Not just to be evidenced here, But as verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages, this will be the theme of glory as eternity is spent in part by God revealing more and more and more and more and more of the immeasurable riches of His grace toward us. Pastor Kent Hughes shared a story in his book on Ephesians about a large prestigious church, he described it as, in London that had under its uh, purview and care three mission churches that ministered around the city. And some of those mission churches were in areas uh, that were occupied by people who had just lived a rough life. And he goes in to describe some of that. But because of what they were coming out of, many salvations were happening in the lives of people that... um, were being rescued from um, the pits of hard lives. On the first Sunday of some months, those three mission churches would come and gather with the larger church to have a combined communion service. And on one such occasion, uh, the, the congregation, I guess by rows, would come down to the front and kneel at the altar where they would pray, they would confess sin, they would uh, enjoy together the partaking of the Lord's Supper, and it was quite a celebration. But you would have, kneeling beside each other, a, a person of what society would say of prominence, 
and then kneeling beside them, a person of what society might say would, would not be necessarily that. And the pastor's watching this unfold one, one evening um, as people were coming down, and he's just marveling and celebrating about the picture of grace going on before him. And beside, uh, down at the altar, was a, he used the term Supreme Court judge, and I, I can only imagine it's similar in applicability there than it is here, but a Supreme Court judge is kneeling, taking the Lord's Supper, right next to what the pastor knew was a gentleman who had just come out of many years of prison. He was a felon, um, having been sentenced to jail by that judge. And he's watching this guy because when he came out of jail, he heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, and was living a radically different life. So now he's at this altar at this place, and and the pastor's celebrating these things in his mind and heart. And at the end of the service, you know, the, the multitude of people, it said prominent, so I imagine there's a lot of folks, are, are leaving the building, and the judge finds himself walking out with the pastor in one of those stuttering silences that's kind of overtaken himself by what's going on. And he, he says to the pastor, um, hey, did you happen to notice who was beside me when I was when we were taking the Lord's Supper. And the pastor said, well, actually, I did. I didn't know if you realized who it was. And he says, oh, yes, I, I knew exactly who it was. And they kept walking, and it was followed by more silences and interrupting of the conversation with just silence, of kind of an awed silence. And then the judge interrupts it and says, what a picture of grace. And the pastor says, you're right, it is a beautiful picture of grace. More silence as they're walking out. And the judge says, of whom do you think I'm referring? And he says, well, I assume you're talking about the felon who after he came out of prison heard the gospel and, and his life was radically changed by Jesus. And he says, oh no, I'm speaking about me. He says, because... You know, our, our friend that came out of jail and heard the gospel from the lowest point, he saw in Christ someone that would raise him up to newness of life. And it makes perfect sense in my mind that, that he would respond to God's calling on that. But when I think about my own life and how I was bred from a childhood to do the right thing and to be in the right circles and to be an upright citizen and to advance. And I went to, I think he went to Oxford. I cannot remember exactly, but all of those things kind of led me in this path that I felt like I had life altogether. But what a picture of grace that God called me to be his family, to be his adopted son. And I was just taken by that. He said, look at me. I'm a greater miracle of grace than anyone else that was up there. And it's grace then from verse 7, which is to be on display for eternity, that Paul then goes in to expound upon in verses 8 and 9, and I'll expound upon it simply by reading it for us, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God for all of us. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
We've seen the dead walking from the depths. Now we've climbed to the pinnacle of the highest point where Paul is celebrating with us a divine intervention. And I want to close in our last minute together um, with this very thing. Verse 10, the master craftsman. The master craftsman. Verse 10 says this, For we, believers, adopted sons, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's been a week or so with a missionary in Italy years ago. I had my daughter with me and one of the highlights of a day that we took to kind of see some sights was to walk through Florence and uh, actually walk into the museum that houses the massive statue of David. 17 feet tall and weighing in at over 12,000 pounds. A single block of marble was crafted into what is now one of the most iconic sculptures of the world. And when I stood below the masterpiece, I was drawn not so much to learn more about who the model was, whom I knew, obviously, but I was drawn more to learn more about the artist, the worker of the masterpiece. So I'm drawn more to the artist in that moment in the shadow of the masterpiece than I was in the model. And so it is to be with the life of the redeemed. Believers are the workmanship. Defined, believers are the masterpiece of God created in Christ Jesus. Theologian F.F. Bruce writes these words, throughout time and in eternity, the church, the genuine authentic church, this society of pardoned rebels is designed by God to be the masterpiece of His goodness. The theme of the Reformation in the 1500s was that we are saved or justified, in their language, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, in, in borrowing um, from the notes in my study Bible that I carry, I share this reminder. The faith that justifies is never alone. Good works are not the root of our redemption. So it's not the cause. But they are necessary fruit. They give evidence on the outside to the inner workings of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We were created for good works that were prepared for us to walk in beforehand. The works that we're to be about are in direct contrast to the works we once performed. Or rather, in which we walked. If I can just get you to glance one more time at your passage, and we'll, this will be it. <laughs> Notice verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now look down at verse 10, the, the bookend of this thought. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we were dead 
in following our daddy the devil. We walked a certain way. But now, the burial death clothes and our works that once marked us as having been replaced with the as, as having been replaced by Christ. Those death burial clothes have been replaced by the righteous robes of Jesus and the works that glorify his Father. Jesus one time was standing in front of a grave, the grave of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead some time, long enough to not smell good. And he speaks to that grave. Not to the grave, but the inhabitant of that grave who could not save himself. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out of that grave and he's bound by the cloths that he had been buried in. And Jesus said, remove those clothes from him. Lazarus came out. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. The gospel message is a gospel of new birth. It's a message of new life. It's a message where we, the purchased, leverage and live our life for the purchaser. Not so as to warrant the purchase, but to reflect the purchase and the new life. Another verse in that song. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on Your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. We've traveled the depths to the heights. Let's now celebrate it in prayer and singing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am overwhelmed by the immeasurable riches of Your grace. You looked at Your people and You referred to them as Your riches of inheritance. And we can become the riches of Your inheritance because You lavished upon us the immeasurable riches of grace by which You awakened us from the spiritual death that we were born in. Just like You spoke to a person dead in the grave and said, Come forth. You called those who would be your children to life. And you raised us up to be seated with you. So Lord, we celebrate that this morning. It's my prayer that if people in this room, in an evaluation of their life, or in just listening to your effective call this morning, if they realize that, man, I've heard this message all my life, but I've never repented of sin confess my sin before Him, and ask Christ to save me, that they would do so now. That they would be born again. And that the fruit of their life would begin looking different. The power of sin having no longer a hold over them. So would you do that? Would you restore the joy of our salvation even as we've reminded ourselves of this journey from the depths to the heights? Would you be honored and glorified in our lives we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.